Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, this is Mehdi Sangilaji. I'm very excited and honored here, uh, to have um, Dr. Christopher Harker with us in the house. Uh, Dr. Harker is an associate professor at the Institute for Global Prosperity, Prosperity at uh, University College London. Um, uh, in, in a second, I will ask Dr. Harker to introduce himself a little bit more uh, to us. And uh, all I'm saying is uh, today we are going to talk to him about his book that came out in January 2021. Am I right? Yeah, it was either it was either December 2020 or January 21. And it's it seems like it came out at both, oh, okay. <laughs> both months. Somehow. So maybe it depends where in the world you are or something like that. Oh, okay. But basically around about that time, yeah. Depends on your spacing, I suppose. Okay, so the book book is called Spacing Debt, Obligations, Violence, and Endurance in Ramallah, Palestine. It's it's, um, been published by Duke University Press. Um, Chris, welcome. Thank you. So... um, could you go ahead and um, tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, uh, I want to apologize. I currently have COVID and physically I'm more or less fine, but I'm really a bit self-conscious because I'm doing a podcast. That I have a very scratchy voice that normally I, I don't have such a scratchy voice. So um, apologies to anyone listening. Um uh, yeah, if that comes through and it's irritating. Um, I'm, as you said, uh, working at um, at UCL in the Institute for Global Prosperity for the last four and a half years. And prior to that, I was in the Department of Geography at Durham University for eight years. Um, my academic background and training is as a, a geographer, human geographer. Um, I did my master's degree at Bristol and my MA and PhD at University of British Columbia in uh, Vancouver, Canada. Um, and then I moved back to the UK 
Um, my research has largely focused on Palestine, and I take a very um, kind of ethnographic approach, which means I've looked at a range of questions um, because the questions I, I look at tend to emerge from what people are experiencing and dealing with. I think what unites those questions is an interest in um, the sorts of agency that kind of quote-unquote ordinary people have while living amidst um, the Israeli occupation and the Palestinian Authority rule and, and any other numbers of attempts to to govern their lives. And obviously that brings us to, to this book where um, financial organizations, um, uh, banks have rapidly expanded the amount of consumer debt that uh, people can buy. And um, so this has become a, a one of the, the things that are shaping people's lives in, in Ramallah and, and indeed elsewhere. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a... Excellent. We'll, we'll go into the details of that. Um, okay, first thing first. Tell us about Sue. Talk so Sorry, can you... uh, tell us about Sue. You you talk so lovely. Oh, my about dedication. Her. This yeah. is my uh, sister-in-law who um, died unfortunately at a very young age, um, as the book was coming towards publication. So the books uh, uh, dedicated to her memory. You also mentioned that uh, she has been active in Palestine. No, no, she uh, was. Um, uh, she was based in um, uh, America and uh, lived in Atlanta. Um, she actually worked for Care International, and she had um, definitely some experience in the region, but she hasn't done any research in Palestine. Itself. Oh, I see. Excellent. Okay. Um, the idea of the book, um, one of the one of the first questions I would like to ask you, a lot of people who have written my favorite books um, is uh, the idea of the first time you thought about the book. Is it was it like an aha moment or <laughs> like a fermentation of it sorts? Was, yeah, the complete opposite of an aha moment. I think <laughs> fermentation is makes it that's almost like a generous interpretation. Um, I would almost characterize it as a struggle. Um, and may, maybe that, that has negative connotations and that's not necessarily appropriate, but um, it, it was a book that emerged out of research and <clears throat> the research began with a very clear focus. So I um, was awarded a, a Lave Hume Early Career Fellowship and that project, when I wrote the grant, was designed to look at families and cities and I was interested in the role of families in shaping urban life and you know in the grant I discussed how families often get overlooked in, in urban processes but when the research began I found that um, although you know families were enabling migration to Ramallah and life in Ramallah in various ways, um, bank debt was also playing an important role. And so the project itself became much more focused on debt. And this was both a process of me learning, um, trying to understand um, 
debt and finance from a, a sort of largely anthropological perspective. Um, but then it was also an accounting of a, a group of people in residents of Palestine who were also coming to grips with this phenomena as something novel. Um, because um, I'll just elaborate, because I'm sure most people won't have read the book. In Palestine, um, in uh, 1948, when the State of Israel was created, a lot of the banks, and um, sort of cutting a long story short, were um, uh, uh, closed or forced to move abroad to Jordan. Um, and in 67, when Israel invaded the what became the West Bank and Gaza Strip and Jerusalem, um, they they closed the banking sector down. And although um, there was uh, something of a banking sector, um, it, it didn't really function in, in any meaningful sense or in the way that we would recognize it um, until after the Oslo Accords were signed in uh, 1993 or say the mid 90s onwards. And even then, because of the lack of a legal functioning legal system in what then became the Palestinian territories, the banking system or banking sector didn't um, offer loans or, or sell credit until very recently, 2007, eight was when we start to see levels of consumer credit really um, skyrocket. And so this was a very, the, the research that I was doing, the field research was conducted largely in 2013. So this was a very novel lived experience for people, even though there is actually a, a, a kind of history of banking and finance and, and credit in Palestine. It's it's not something that's held in, in lived memory necessarily. I see. Very early in the book, you say, you, 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 you say this, you say, place as extrovert, open and always in process rather than closed and static. This is, for me, was very, a very novel idea because usually, like, okay, time changes, place, place stays uh, the same. Mm-hmm. But um, you explained very well how, how this, that's, that's not exactly the case. Uh, could you explain that, please? Yeah, of course. I mean, this, uh, as I said, my training is largely as a human geographer, and I think this is one of the insights in the books that that's um, drawing on a geographical tradition of thinking. And, and in this particular context, I'm sure many geographers will recognize the kind of way I thought about places as the way that Doreen Massey's uh, work encourages to to think about places open, and she uses a phrase "coming togetherness" or "thrown togetherness." Um, that sense of place as dynamic as um, a confluence of flows. And um, in her later work, she she um, uses the conceptual idea of assemblage to also think about places um, uh, something that that's constituted by multiple processes and and forces and materialities um and i think this um way of thinking is not just theoretically appealing for me but it's also very useful empirically to understand cities like ramallah where there's all kinds of you know people and um ideas 
and money going in and out and um, even uh, Palestine more generally the Palestinian territories are, are if you like radically open to forms of n- not just uh, colonial occupation but kind of the international governance that um, overlays that occupation now after after so many decades um, so I think it, it really helps capture the yeah both as you as you alluded to the dynamism but also the multiple um, processes and, and spatialities that shape a particular place whether that's a, a home space or a city or a territory um so I guess my question um, I haven't dropped my my mind um, around this question but I mean I guess my question is um, how how do we get people to think of I mean or or is it your understanding that people already uh, think of place as extrovert and open or, or or is it something that you want more scholars or people to uh, to think of? Um, they think of a place. Yeah, I I think um, I I don't know if I've thought about it quite in those terms in the sense that that's my my mission, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think it's important um, if you're trying to understand social phenomena. So the book is trying to understand debt, people's experiences of debt, and and at its simplest, I think this this. Um, geographical argument about place is important because it highlights and and argues that we can't just focus our attention on the the material place itself. We need to look beyond that because there's all sorts of ways in which what's happening elsewhere, whether it's relatives who live in other parts of the West Bank, whether it's uh, relatives who live abroad, whether it's uh, international donor organizations um, who could be headquartered in any number of European or North American cities. Um, all of these um, uh, people and the things they're doing are shaping what's happening in this one neighborhood of Mushurai where I was conducted research and, and obviously then we've got to look <clears throat> not everyone has the the same power to, to kind of uh, impact place and and of course the the Israeli occupation is remains the primary shaper of uh, of life in in the occupied territories um, but there are many other kind of factors and nuances too excellent so Let's get to debt. You talk about geography of debt, and uh, friends who know me uh, know that I'm I'm crazy about about I'm, I'm bananas about uh, David uh, the late David Graeber, and um, I should tell you probably. And the first time I was looking on the um, uh, website. Uh, I was looking for books um, to read on the website of the New Books Networks. And um, I came across this um, title, Spacing Debt. I have to say, it's a, it's a 
capturing, captivating um, title. And uh, the dead part was more important to me because by that time I, I, I knew that through the, the quintessential, uh, quintessential uh, in, uh, significance of that um, through David Graeber. And um, imagine my surprise and um, excitement to see his name almost all over the book. Oh, no, no, not all, all over, but in a lot of places in the book. Do you think it's in the same vein? Do you, you, are, you are trying to make that more more known, more understandable, the, the, the impact it has on people's uh, lives, um, the, the devastating impact it has on people's mm-hmm. lives and everything. Is that in the same vein, in the same kind of project? Yeah, I think you could definitely absolutely say that. I think David Graeber's uh, book that you allude to is obviously one of the the key references in the field if you're thinking about debt in any way that isn't purely as an economist would think. And I'm, I'm sure many economists have, have read that book too. And um, the I think it's useful to think about how Graeber himself is drawing on a rich tradition of anthropology, of course, that that has always been interested in um, how lives are made and um, continually created through relationships of what we think of as borrowing and lending. Um, and, you know, we in our societies would pass into social and, and economic categories. Um, I think, yeah, obviously Graeber's works heavily influenced by both Marx, but also Mouse and that Mausian tradition of of anthropology is rich in in studies of uh, debt, and certainly uh, as well as Graeber, um, a lot of anthrop- contemporary anthropologies of of debt and finance have been incredibly influential on my thinking. Um, just to name a couple of <laughs> people who were colleagues with David at, at LSE. Uh, um, Deborah James's book Money from Nothing, which was looking at um, the role of debt in post-apartheid South Africa, was was very influential, for, particularly for the importance of aspiration and um, the way in which her ethnography showed um, provides this this very compelling explanation for why people take on these what on the face of it seem like horrendous horrendously crippling loans and, and debts and um and in other words how you know money fits within life projects that and, and obviously deborah's book also is incredibly um uh nuanced in how it then understands those life projects as part of this broader national transition from apartheid to post-apartheid and the the post-apartheid malaise, if one can call it that, of the 2000s in South Africa. And then also Laura Baer's book, Navigating Austerity, which is uh, an ethnography in um, of the Hooghly, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, uh, river in, in India, was another kind of wonderful um, <clears throat> exploration of how 
thinking about finance through um, everyday life helps us understand it um, not as an abstraction, but as something that has meaningful effects in all sorts of ways. And but there's but also I think what Laura shows is is the kind of disconnect um, between a a way ways of thinking about finance that that don't understand the the social ethos it it could have and and maybe in in other contexts it it does or or historically may or may not have had um so i think i'm i to come back to your question um yeah i'm i'm very concerned in my book too to think about okay what what is debt as a shaping force in people's lives and in this context how does it shape the lives of people who are normally thought about amongst at least critical social scientists in terms of how they live under colonial occupation um so this was something new but also then um as sorry it's something new for the people in Ramallah as I've explained earlier but but also then conceptually it's interesting and there's, there's probably more work to be done to think about how do we think about finance and, and colonialism in as a present problem as opposed to just a historical um, or, or, or something that's more rooted in history. So when you talk about the geography of debt um, you mentioned neoliberalism which is um, a problematic word, a word for a lot of people because they, they want to just completely deny it. They say it doesn't, it doesn't uh, exist. And on the other hand, um, a lot of people um, blame everything on, on this word or, or, or kind of lazily um used uh, this term to like tag every every problem they see um not you <laughs> you you go into the the details of uh, how uh, neoliberal neoliberal um, policies have um, kind of devastated uh, romala and a, a lot of the family relationships and everything like that could you go into some details about that Yeah, absolutely. I I think your the 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 way you've discussed it's quite helpful because, as you say in in the book, my own approach is someone who's very wary of uh, accounts that just label everything uh, neoliberalism. Maybe this reflects um, approaches more in in human geography. I'm aware in the broader world that the the first issue of people just acknowledge not acknowledging the the kind of Uh, harms that are out there in, in contemporary liberal forms of government um, is is more of an issue. But yeah, I find in, uh, and of course, you know, I'm not at all original in saying that, but it, or in saying this, that, that it is a term that's loosely applied uh, conceptually. And I'm quite concerned if um, I do engage with debates to be very clear about what I'm engaging with. Um, I'm not sure I ever um, characterize what's going on in Ramallah as neoliberal, um, which, 
which has to be understood very carefully. I think this is important. And this is what I try to do in, in the book is to really firstly focus on on actual processes that, that can be named and, and maybe thought about as neoliberal. So for instance, um, the idea that people can prosper if they are given greater access to credit is an idea that that circulates around the the globe really and is um undoubtedly consistent with what many people would think of as neoliberal ideology this this idea certainly taken root in um the the Palestinian uh, Monetary Authority and the the banking sector there, which itself is probably um, not surprising given the sorts of education and work that people in those sectors have done. So these are people who will go abroad to get PhDs um, in, in economics and then you know maybe work for the World Bank and the IMF. And so the the, the group think, um, that emerges or, or at least prevalent ways of thinking that emerge out of those organizations are then reflected in the Palestinian context. Um, so when I say I don't name things neoliberalism, it's not because I'm not concerned to, to name these sorts of processes. I think it's more about precision and um, being clear about what is happening and what isn't happening, you know, so, for instance, you know, a lot of people would think neoliberalism is heavily connected with privatization. Um, but this is, is quite a challenging idea in the Palestinian context when it's hard to, to discern if anything was public in the way that uh, public is imagined in, in liberal Western democracies. Um, there may be like forms of communal ownership, and anyway, I it, essentially I just get I worry about the nuances, and so I'm therefore I worry about using big terms that, as you said, can become just tags or or, or kind of catchphrases. Um, but having said that, I'm uh, part of my thinking in terms of how we understand economics and everyday life has been um, very influenced by uh, uh, I would broadly what I would refer to as a kind of Foucauldian way of thinking neoliberalism without wanting to get into those debates um, necessarily. But people like Stephen Collier's work and his book Post-Soviet Social, um, which again, he's coming from an anthropological background and he's tracing very precisely, you know, what, socio-economic and political economic and cultural economic transformations have taken place and how they can be traced back to particular thinkers who very explicitly do identify as neoliberal um that that isn't what my book does but i think that kind of work um and the way in which neoliberalism operates in those contexts um is is something that i'm you know um very influenced by also people like Clive Barnett within geography. Let's get to the hard parts, at, at least for me. <laughs> I, could, I'm, uh, I come from a political science background, so these parts were a bit, well, challenging for me. Uh, I had to, well, 
comes off uh, internet um, dictionaries, Wikipedia's, and stuff uh, uh, to, to to go ahead in these parts. So one of them was the, uh, this. You said debts are topologies. So what on earth are topologies? Yeah. So I think this is where I'm I'm getting into the the weeds as a geographer. So I mean, topology is a a, a type of space or it's a spatial concept. So I think the broader argument, probably just to take one step back about the book, is, is as the title hopefully indicates, we need to think about debt spatially. And, um, you, you know, maybe you could say geographically. And so, in other words, when I came to this problem of debt as an empirical problem, I then turned to the academic literature and it tells you, um, people like Graeber tell you a lot about debt in terms of its social consequences. And we also understand debt in in temporal terms. So probably the most common and easiest way to understand debt is, you know, I borrow money now and I've got to pay it back later. And what I'm trying to convey with my argument about spacing debt is that we also need to understand that when someone lends or someone else borrows, that this creates a relation or a relationship that's social, it's temporal, but it's also a spatial relationship. So it's binding people to certain spaces, it's connecting people across spaces. So then if we come to the language of topology, and I also use the term topography in the book. Yep, that was my next question. <laughs> yeah, so I'll try to deal with both of them in the same um, same uh, paragraph, so to speak. Um, these are um, what... Um, these are uh, quite precise terms for thinking about space in particular ways. Um, as I uh, note in the book, these are terms that um, have been used a little bit in uh, contemporary or, or recent geographical debates. Um, so there's a way in which I'm speaking a little bit to those debates and the authors. And when I argue that dot debt is a topology, what I'm saying is it's a particular type of space, and it's uh, probably the most straightforward way of saying it is as a relational kind of space. So when I'm teaching this idea of topologies or, or relational space to students, I actually often talk about um, my, uh, I give an example of the sentence, I am close to my brother. So if we think about my relationship with my brother in topographic terms, this is not topological, so this is more about material space. This this isn't true. My brother lives in Atlanta and I live in uh, London. So topographically, there is a huge physical topographic distance between us. But if I say to you, I'm close to my brother, you probably immediately understand without me saying that I'm not talking about where we are in the world. We're talking about an emotional relationship or a social bond that exists between us. Now, this isn't in any way material, you know, um, but but it's still very real. And it's, um, 
yeah, it, it's it's a very specific connection, uh, a, a specific relation. Um, and in the same way, a debt is a, a kind of bonding um, that, that has a specific geography. So um, there's the example I, uh, in the book, there's the... Um, there's a, a I quote a joke that one of my participants made where um, uh, someone says uh, reports that a friend of his took a loan out to get married and uh, if he can't repay the debt um, the bank will take his wife instead or something so it's on one hand uh, you know it's a funny joke but on the other hand it actually illustrates that 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 person then has that relationship with the bank um, and is, if you like, tied to it. I think this language of tied and bonding is is obviously historically, you know, something that debts have always been talked about in those terms, right? Yeah. Apart, you said, you, you, you told us about, uh, about the joke and I, I didn't have it in my questions, but um, you, you talk about um, how in... Um, Old, old Europe uh, people would run away to other countries in order to, to um, well, escape uh, debts. Uh, I don't, I don't remember the the exact term you used. Uh, it had leg in it. Leg, uh, leg bailing, yeah. Leg. <laughs> That's amazing, leg bailing. Um, so they, they just just ran away to other countries, and they, I'm guessing, they lived in other countries for the rest of their lives just to avoid. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is uh, Gustav Peebles' research that I was um, drawing on, and he has this great paper where he he kind of offers a or, or he starts a conversation in some ways, probably without exactly meaning to, about uh, the geography of debt. And as as you say, he looks at practices of of leg bailing where people would literally flee the jurisdiction to avoid paying their debts, but then they couldn't live in that geography in that space um and he there's another practice that i've um forgotten because it's been a while since i've read that paper where people are able to discharge their debts and stay stay within in the the community and he's also writing about debt as prison but i think that works useful um, because it shows how those two types of space why i would say as relational and physical or topological and topographic are are related of course um so there's no um separation between them even though we can think about them as distinctive types of spaces they're kind of enfolded into each other um so yeah if you're not going to honor your debt um maybe you've got to leg bail it and leave the jurisdiction what a euphemism like me. Yeah. Um, you also talk about debt ecologies. This, this is even um, like um, <laughs> further in the, in, in, the, in the woods, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. So um, how, how is debt an ecology? I think more than debt being... I, I think ecologies um, is... I'm using that term less... Um, in terms of its environmental connotations or, um, you know, to think about nature or, or anything like that. And more just to 
um, use it to think about when we think about an ecosystem that word describes multiple things um, and it I was going to say in the same space but it actually helps avoid the idea of a container in which things are in it it, it describes again this it's sort of linked to this idea of place we discussed of um, a a definable, system ecosystem let's say um where there's many dynamic processes and if you like i was using ecologies to think about how all of um a a specific uh, I, I refer to it as the Ramala debt ecology, so a specific time and space where lots of these financial and um debt processes kind of come together into a kind of coherence um that that's you know maybe more or less fleeting and um but but there's something um yeah coherent enough that it it has kind of meaning so while of course people in ramallah don't talk about the ramallah debt ecology that's something i invented uh, as an analytical term um in the book i do talk about this idea of Ramallah being a bubble or an exception and and of course other Palestinian scholars have picked up on this um, so there is this sense amongst the population that Ramallah is something different and distinct um, even from other cities in Palestine yeah, that was um, a question I would, would um, ask later but now that you have mentioned why makes Ramallah so different you, you mentioned like extensively in the book. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, Ramallah is a, originally a, a very, a, just a, a small village for quite a lot of history or, or it becomes a, you know, slightly bigger town. But unlike um, some of the cities in Palestine, it doesn't necessarily... Um, have a long history and it really um, becomes a city or even not even a city I mean arguably some people say it's still not a city but arguably only really becomes a city or starts the process of becoming a city after 1948 um, and the creation of Israel and the Palestinian Nakba when uh, Palestinian Palestinians fleeing uh, Israeli forces rush to uh, relatives um, who were living there or to land and uh, a, a force to, to live as as refugees on those lands. Um, so it's only then, because of this influx of refugees, that um, it starts the process of becoming a city. And then it's really only after Oslo in 1993 when it, it really begins the process of becoming a city and that's connected to the fact that Palestinians are not allowed to govern in East Jerusalem as part of the Oslo Accords and Ramallah which is almost a, a suburb of Jerusalem um, becomes the the nearest place for the seat of this um, newly created at that time Palestinian authority and um, from that point on because of the huge investment, like literal and figurative, in the Palestinian Authority and the uh, way in which it works, which in includes 
corruption and nepotism, etc. Um, the you, you know people are really uh, uh, if if they want to work in the the public sector, then Ramallah is the place where all the jobs are. So Ramallah is the city where all bar one, at least at the time I was doing research, of the Palestinian ministry headquarters are located. Uh, and it's become the de facto capital. Um, and in, in many ways, the, the kind of geographies of its emergence are, I always think, quite similar to London in the UK. You've got a centralised, you know, centralization of government and a centralization of the economy, uh, often to the detriment of other places too. Excellent. Uh, which brings us to what Thomas Jefferson said he feared more than standing armies, the banks. You go into details of how foreign banks have helped make this this idea of Ramallah, this, this, this situation in Ramallah. Uh, what are the roles and um, uh, are, are IMF and I don't know, World Bank, um, have, uh, did, did they have anything to do with this? Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, the short answer is yes, but the, the longer answer is yeah. quite nuanced. And probably even after all my research, there's probably more digging I'd need to do to tell that particular historical story. Um, so it's clear that um, uh, that that um, the international organizations that, that govern Palestine or play a very significant role in, in governing Palestine after the Oslo Accords um, have really shaped uh, politics and, and economics and social life there, and primarily because Palestine's so reliant on, on donor funding. So, you know, the holding the purse strings and setting the criteria by which money is dispersed and the sorts of uh, behavior, policy making or uh, otherwise one has to adhere to have, have undoubtedly um, shaped the uh, development of what has taken place. I think it's also important though alongside that story to recognize um, that within Palestine itself the uh, leadership is always trying to problem solve in various ways and particularly at the Palestine Monetary Authority which is the central bank in waiting I guess is the sort of effective shorthand for describing that um, yeah. They are in um, the the mid or let's say late sort of 2007, 2008, 2009. The second intifada has sort of petering out slash come to an end. The physical infrastructure and the economic infrastructure of uh, Palestine or the, the occupied territories has been devastated. And they're now faced with this problem like how do we um make people's lives better how do we create opportunities for them to to live um somewhat meaningful valuable lives under the 
prevailing conditions of occupation. And as mentioned, many of them may have had training in the IMF and World Bank, and that's where the kind of solutions that are developed have a, a strong um, uh, alignment with, um, you know, what the World Bank or the IMF would say. But it's it's crucial to recognize it wasn't that the World Bank and IMF came in and said, here's a policy plan, do this, do this, do that. It was more a case of um, the monetary authority saying, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to prevent, you know, uh, banks from moving as much capital capital outside of Palestine. We're going to develop a credit registry and we've now, um, because of um, the digital payments of salaries, got the capability to, to do that and to monitor flows of money in ways that we couldn't do beforehand. Um, and then you've got a situation where international donors are very worried um, about corruption and giving money and want kind of transparency and are so kind of pushing towards digital financial systems too. Um, And at the population, you know, as a a population level, then you've got people, you know, looking for jobs, um, looking for ways to um, buy housing or access housing. Um, And those options are, you know, if you want housing where the jobs are, uh, incredibly limited and becoming very expensive. Uh, and so the emergent, you know, debt becomes this uh, solution for for various kinds of problems or, or solution to various kinds of problems and uh, desires. Do you suppose there's a, there's a kind of dialectic between the closed and fragmented uh, geography and let's say identity of uh, nowadays what we call Palestine and uh, and on the other hand the openness of um, Palestine to uh, foreign uh, foreign governance foreign donor governance like do they go hand in hand in hand checking jowl or or is it just something like uh, accidental yeah yeah no i think that's something i i explicitly talk about in the book is exactly that like on the one hand um colonial occupation is about creating a lots of borders and barriers and prisons and um there's the you know, language of sort of carceral archipelagos and, um, you know, people who are familiar with Palestine in terms of the the occupied territories will know all about the checkpoint system and the ID system and movement restrictions, as well as then um, the the kind of military incursions and um, sort of violent disciplining of Palestinian life and imprisonment, all of these factors, you know, create um, undoubtedly conditions that are um, carceral in in many ways, shapes and forms. Uh, And then this does leave a a kind of political level. It creates a a kind of vulnerability um, and... um, uh, a, a kind of openness that um, international bodies can um, exploit or, or or at least uh, uh, 
sort of fill or, or become become enfolded in. Um, yeah. Um, you do mention um, on your own. You do uh, you do mention um, Israel as a settler colonialism. And you quote your own participants as saying, um, as calling Israel as an appetite. At any point, did you think of the backlash it might have from the well, right wingers, Christian Zionists? Um, I don't know anybody. Like all these groups that are looking for tagging anyone anti-Semite if they make any critique of Israel. Um, no, I don't think I did think about them. I mean, I think when one works in Palestine and in solidarity with Palestinians, um, the firstly, you know, at least speaking for myself, I come, you know, I'm coming from a, a place of, of privilege with regards to the um, people that I, the people who've participated in my study. And I think that the key question really to ask is, is how do you use your various privileges to enhance or, or share their voices and perspectives? Um, and how, you know, in designing and conducting research, can you do things will actually help them in in their lives you know in a very active sense um so one thing for instance that i'm doing this summer which is very much on the back of the the research in the book is i'll be working with uh, mass the economic and political research center and the palestine monetary authority in the palestinian capital markets authority to look at the financial inclusion um agenda which has taken hold uh, or the, the process began formally in 2018 it, it actually obviously started a lot earlier um, but you know having done this intensive ethnographic research with with ordinary residents if you like of uh, Alberta um, I think the key question for me is you know if decisions are being made by by government figures, how do we make sure that those decisions, those policies, practices, whatever it is, actually actually benefit people on the ground? Um, and um, yeah, as I said, how, how can I use my kind of privileged position to, to help them build better lives? I'm sort of less concerned <laughs> about yeah. myself. I have a master's degree in the Middle Eastern studies, and um, a lot of my former colleagues and um, um, classmates um, went to Palestine. And they, your your answer reminds me of, of them. They have almost exactly uh, verbatim the same answer. Um, if you go and see Palestine, there's nothing else you can do but to defend these people. I mean, it's yeah, I, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean. Yeah, I, I would certainly agree. I think when you see what happens on the ground, it's not debatable, or you know, it, it's not one of the things that's nuanced. It's it's clear and it's violent and it's unjust and 
I, yeah, it's not it's not an area that um, anyone I think who's who's kind of witnessed it feels like there's, there's any kind of doubt about what's going on or or you know any questions. I th- I think it's you know where there's issues, it's it's over forms of produced ignorance and. Um, but yeah, I think, or I, I mean, a lot of people who work on Palestine are um, obviously invested in in questions of politics and conflict. And I think one thing that distinguishes my work a little bit, or at least certainly I've always thought about it this way, is that um, beyond kind of the, the big geopolitical questions, people are still making their lives. And my research has always been kind of interested in in how Palestinians do that and what kinds of agency and capacity they have, um, and to to kind of both understand that and work with that. Um, exactly, and um, I have to say, kudos! It comes out uh, in the book. I mean, you have to read like five pages and. Uh, you know where you stand, where Chris <laughs> Harker stands on this issue. So, um, okay, um, for the last questions, um, the methodology. Your your book for um, okay, and now now I'm just uh, shamelessly <laughs> uh, advertising your book because I really want people to go <laughs> to go <laughs> to go and read it. Um, the methodology is just mind-blowingly good. You you use it's a combination of financial analysis, um, uh, urban studies, and geographical studies, or whatever they call that. I don't I don't, I don't know anything about geography. Uh, debt studies, um, gender studies. It's it's but there's there's nothing. There's nothing forced about it. They're all weaved together the way we understand all of it in in society. Like when when you go out, you are all of these. You are in. You are a person in debt. You are you are a man or a woman. You are you are in a urban urban uh, uh, space. Your your book seems like life itself because you you do not and I, I I'm, I'm serious about, I'm I'm very sincere about this. Um, how how did you do that? I mean, uh, tell us about the the methodology you came up with and um, in in continuation of that, um, I, I have another question. But but let's do this. Sure, sure. First. That's a very. Uh kind thing to say to any social scientist I think if you can capture something like life itself I'm sure I don't quite get all the nuances and details but certainly um, my approach um, to, to research at least since my PhD has been very much aligned with what's often called grounded theory which is <clears throat> um, thinking about the what a you know, might be thought about as empirical context or the worlds in which we we operate as provocations for theorizing and as sources of, of theoretical insight as much as the the books that you know we as as academics read too. 
And <clears throat> so firstly, I've, I, I always hope or I always aspire and try to, to keep everything on a level playing field intellectually to keep, um, you know, the ideas that I draw from, from scholars, um, uh, to use them um, alongside the, the ideas that I uh, draw from participants and, and what I encounter in the field policies uh, uh the the material space of the city um i think then alongside that or or in order to facilitate that i think an ethnographic approach is useful because um because it's immersive because you come to grips with the nuances of of people's you have the opportunity to come to uh, appreciate the nuances of people's lives, the richness, the diversity, and um, a lot. There's there's probably also a third part, which is, I think, human geography globally, or or I shouldn't say globally. That's a terrible thing to say. In, in Anglof- anglophone human geography, which is not at all global, it's very parochial. Um, but within Anglophone speaking countries, it's quite a small discipline because it doesn't have that um, big base in, in North or in America in particular. So I think human geographers are trained to always look beyond the borders of our discipline. So I've always been very curious about, you know, interesting work and, and discipline whatever the discipline it doesn't really matter if it's telling me something about a debt or, or politics as lived experience or um uh, w- whatever it might be capacity then i'm going to engage with that work because it's helping me to understand what i'm seeing and experiencing and so i think maybe those are the key ingredients so um, you, uh, the, the question, which was in continuation of the uh, uh, previous one, uh, you quite extensively mentioned and make references to um, a lot of people, a lot of uh, scholars from the region, and many, many of whom are women. And uh, um, can I help uh, wondering if that was um, a, like a conscious decision you made before starting? It's it, okay, I'm going to go read them themselves and, and, and hear them, and um, then this happened? Or this is something uh, you just started the process and came about naturally? I, uh, well, naturally is not, not exactly a good word, probably, or for the lack mm-hmm. of a better word, naturally, uh, but, uh, or something else? Yeah, I think um, I mean you're absolutely right. Um, some of the, the the key thinkers of Palestinian life, are, uh, people like Lisa Taraki and Rima Hamami, um, that I draw on extensively, and and also I think it's important to mention, uh, as I do in the book, that the research itself was really a co-production with two research assistants, Darin Sayad and Rima Shibeta. And although, you know, eventually I sat down to, to kind of write the book, um, <clears throat> their insights and um, help with the research process were 
<clears throat> Sorry, I'm getting now to the point where my voice is <laughs> running out of steam, but is yeah. COVID kicks in. But um, yeah, their insights were really crucial, and I think, um, I mean, uh, my initial response to your question is: if you want to understand Palestinian in life in Ramallah, those are the people you've got to read. Like, they're, they're the ones. Uh, who, who give you the the insights and the detail? Um, I did collaborate with the Institute of Women's Studies at Birzeit University uh, in order to recruit Doreen and Rima, and I think working with as a, a mixed gender team as we we were was crucial because um, gendered experiences of of debt are very. Um, not entirely distinct but they're different and it's important to kind of recognize the way different people men and women but but also you know young and old parents and children are having distinct uh, experiences and i think having a, a mixed gender team was useful actually to kind of appreciate those um the the differences um and the way they're structuring experience too like it's even within the context of Ramallah these experiences are not uniform there's you know a lot of distinctions and and gender is one of the cleavages for those uh, differences yeah yeah it came comes out in the book too not the whole gender issue about the debt too of course um last question um What's your next big project? So after finishing this book, I was conscious that when I was writing it, that there was this financial inclusion process going on and I hadn't really attended to it as much as, as I could have done because I was kind of more focused on debt. But I've been doing some research um, into it. And as I mentioned briefly earlier, what I want to um, think about now is how can we reshape financial inclusion as a if I almost think about it as a world making project so when these organizations are promoting financial inclusion ultimately it's because they believe sincerely or, or otherwise that it's improving people's lives now i think we have a lot of evidence that 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 really isn't the case but given the amount of belief and credibility that's attached to financial inclusion projects, what I'm broadly interested in is can, can we kind of transform them or, or queer them to to actually function so that they uh, improve people's lives? And one of the ways I might, I'm going to think about this is in relation to the concept of prosperity. So if we move beyond let's say hegemonic understandings of prosperity as well and start asking people what do they understand by prosperity what does it mean to be prosperous what does it mean to uh, live a good and fulfilling life um, can we use those sorts of questions to transform how financial inclusion functions to actually start providing the things that people want um, so this is quite a, an expansive vision and um, hopefully the research we're doing that's just this summer looking at the existing financial inclusion program in Palestine provides the first uh, step into 
to kind of thinking about how those transformations might be enacted. Excellent. Okay, Dr. Harker, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you ever so much. It's been a real pleasure. It was, was, was all mine. Thank you. Thank you.